So you may remember that Dan is not allowed to use fountain pens anymore after his instant incident um, of breaking it. Um, but I did come across some pens that I think he is allowed to use. Uh, these are little baseball pens, baseball bat pens. So Dan, I will give you these after the service. I, I could throw it to you, but it might, it might not be a good idea. So by a show of hands, how many here have at some point in their life been involved in theater production or been in a play? Okay, so a decent amount of people. I have as well. Um, I don't know, maybe that's a little surprising. That's not really my, my thing. But I have been involved in theater. Uh, when I was in high school, I was in like three plays, I think. And one of my professors in college, uh, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, if you're familiar with him, he likes to sort of cast um, the, the Christian life and the Christian mission in terms of a drama, theater-type uh, setting. So you can think of the church as, like a local church, as a local community theater, uh, the local set of actors performing the drama. You might think of the, the Bible, God's Word, as our script that tells us our part and tells of, of the larger story of which we are um, playing. Pastors are sort of like the local play directors, the directors of the local theater. Theologians and scholars are uh, dramaturgs. If you're not familiar with that term, which I wasn't originally, that's like a person that a theater hires to make sure they're getting kind of the cultural um, setting right, the different aspects of the theater, making sure you're historically accurate. So our theologians are kind of like those theater uh, people that make sure we're getting the play correct. Jesus, of course, is the star of the show. Um, we're all the supporting actors, and God is the author of the drama. He's the creative genius behind it all. And I like this illustration for multiple reasons. One of them is that it helps us understand that Scripture is not just a book with information for us to understand. It's not a rule book of sort of moral commandments that we're just supposed to do, like the Bible is just a rule book. But it shows us that the Bible tells of a drama, a story, that we are actually living out. That the Bible has mission as its aim. It has action as its aim. And so actually, we oftentimes think of um, this idea of application, like taking something in Scripture and then applying it to something outside of Scripture, like ourselves. Maybe a better way of thinking about it is less application, sort of like ex extracting something from the Bible and taking it to our own preconceived ideas of like what we need to be doing, our own sense of, uh, of, of, of felt needs that we have. Less uh, application out of the Bible and more of us entering into the story of the Bible. How do I actually fit myself better into the drama and into the world that the Bible depicts rather than taking it and applying it to my own world? How do I enter into the Bible's world? And it also shows that we are not passive spectators in this drama. We're not just observers, but we actually serve a role. We're agents. We're actors. We're participants in the drama the story of God's redemption. And this fits the book of Revelation, does it not? Because Revelation is very much presenting reality in terms of a drama, as we've seen, with characters and, and, and vivid imagery. 
And the point of Revelation, as we've unpacked it, is that we need our imaginations, we need our, our vision of the world shaped by Revelation's portrait of reality. We need to have, as we put it here, reality unveiled to us. Revelation is revealing the world as it really is, and we need to absorb that perspective so that we might live in greater alignment with reality, be empowered for patient endurance. Well, chapter 10 and 11 of Revelation are going to help us with just that. It's going to answer the question, what is our role in this story? As actors in the story of, of the drama of redemption, what is our role? And we need to know our role in the story. If we don't know who we are as actors, we're not going to play a very, uh, uh, do a very good job in the theater. And so just a couple preliminary uh, things we need to get on the table before we dive into our passage. We'll be mainly in chapter 10 today, but with a view to chapter 11 as a two-part sort of series here. Um, you'll, we're heading into the excursus of the trumpets. And you may remember with the seal judgments, you get a, a set of seven judgments in the seal judgments, and you, then you get another seven judgments in the trumpet. Eventually, you get seven with the bowls. So you get these sets of seven judgments that parallel each other. In the seal and the trumpet judgments, between the sixth and the seventh, we get a little bit, bit of a break. We call it an interlude or an excursus or a zooming in specifically on the place of the church in the midst of these judgments. So with the seal judgments, chapter 6 and 7, when we get the zoom in in chapter 7, we see, that the, we see the place of the church in the midst of God's judgments with this question at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand before God's judgments? Who can stand before God's seal judgments? And what we find then in chapter 7 with this picture of the 144,000 representing the church is that the church is standing as those who are sealed, sealed for the seal judgments. Likewise, in chapters 10 and 11 here, we get another zoom-in excursus in the midst of the trumpet judgments. Now, we will look specifically at the commission of the church. The mission of the church. What is the church doing? What are they called to do in the midst of the tribulation? Again, looking at our role as actors in the drama. And now we're looking at this time period, again, between the trumpets. And I want us to know how the trumpets close, because this will be really helpful. Look at chapter, the end of chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. You remember, the trumpets are these warning blasts, warning of a greater judgment to come. And how does unbelieving humanity re respond to these warnings? Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, or in verse 21, nor did they repent. So at this point in the drama, in the trumpets, unbelieving humanity is not repenting, and it sort of raises the question, okay, before we head into the seventh trumpet and this whole thing wraps up, how are they going to repent? Or will they repent? And then we look at our place in chapter 10 and 11, and what we see is that the church is commissioned as prophets. The church receives a prophetic commission. And just one note on when I say prophet in this sermon and the next, um, we sometimes think of prophecy as like telling the future, and it, it, at times it involves that. But prophecy more on a more basic level is just speaking the words of God. Okay, So the church is commissioned to a, a prophetic ministry. 
And what we see is that in chapter 10, John is going to receive that commission. He is going to eat the scroll, as we just read, which is sort of the symbolism from Ezekiel of receiving the commission to then absorb the message that he's about to communicate. And then as it says in chapter 11, or verse 11 of chapter 10, right after eating the scroll, it says, you again must prophesy. So John is receiving this commission to prophesy. And as we'll see then, heading into chapter 11, which depicts the church as prophets, John is really standing in for the church here. John is representing the church, receiving a prophetic commission that then the church is going to carry out. And in this way, chapter 10, what we're dealing with today, is like a setup for chapter 11, which we'll deal with mostly next week. So chapter 10 here is like the introduction, the church's commission, and then we'll look at some of the details of that commission in chapter 11. Okay, everyone tracking? Let's get into the text now. In, in chapter 10, look at verse 1 with me. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And so the first thing we see here is, is this description. If you're familiar with maybe where some of these things are alluding to, we don't have time to get into all the details, but it, this oftentimes catches scholars and interpreters as a very interesting description because these are descriptions that reflect God himself or Christ himself. And so some people even wrestle with, could this angel be Jesus himself? And I don't think that's the case. Jesus is never referred to as an angel. Angels are always their own thing in the book of Revelation. But it is interesting, it is interesting that um, the angel is described in these divine sort of ways where I think the idea is, is that the angel, as an angel, is nonetheless representative of Christ. He is a messenger of God, of Christ. And so what we see here is that the commission that the angel is about to give the church via John is a commission from none other than God himself. That our mission as a church is a God-given mission. It's a divinely originating mission. Look at verse 2 now. And this angel had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, in this imagery of a, of a, I mean, this is a ginormous angel to be able to put one foot here and one foot there. It's like he ascends into heaven. He's got one foot on the land, one on the sea. The idea seems to be that the message, the commission he's about to give relates to all of creation. And this is really then supported, if you look at verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, notice this, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So the angel who ascends into heaven and is standing on the sea and on the land, he swears then by the creator who created the heaven, the sea, and the land. What he's about to say has to do with all of creation, the history and the destiny of all of creation. Even as verse 11 says, when, when he was told he must prophesy, it said that he must prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. We're talking here, we're getting ready to hear God's purposes for the world, all of creation, all of humanity. But then notice what happens in verse 3, something quite peculiar. In verse 3, it says, And this angel called out with a loud voice like a, like a lion roaring. 
And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders had said, and do not write it down. Okay, so we get this thing about the seven thunders. What is this all about? Well, the fact that there are seven of them and the fact that they are thunders, I think, indicate that this is hypothetically another series of judgments. We've had the seven seals, which are opening up the seven scroll. And you remember that in each of these sets of judgments in the book of the Revelation, the, 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 the imagery used conveys something about the judgment. So the scroll is like God's plans written down. And as the seals are opened, it's like his plan is being revealed and it's coming into fruition. Or the trumpets we talked about are like these warning blasts of the divine warfare that's coming on humanity. And so the trumpets are a warning. Or the bowls, as we'll probably see, the bowls are oftentimes in Revelation filled with the prayers of the saints. So it's like pouring out the prayers of the saints to execute God's purposes. So here thunders, again, seven, just like the other judgments, the fullness of God's judgment, in other words. The thunders are oftentimes associated in the book with God's presence. Like at Sinai, when God comes on the mountain, there's thunders. It seems to be the idea of that these, this would be another set of judgments, hypothetically. Maybe increasing, where the seals were a quarter and the trumpets are a third, maybe the thunders would be half, and it's going to escalate even further. But what does he say? He hears a voice that says, seal it up. Don't write it down. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that Revelation is oftentimes uh, built off of imagery from Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 11 and 12, Daniel is also told regarding the, the, the promises of the final fulfillment of God's kingdom. He is told, shut it up, seal it up, and keep it closed. And the idea there is that it's, it's reserved from being immediately executed, that those, that final program of God's redemption is sort of kept because it's not going to happen right away. It's reserved for a later time. And so the idea here of this set of seven thunder judgments being sealed up seems to be this idea that God is saying, you know what? I could keep pouring out judgment, but we're going to hold back for a moment. We're going to see things happen a different way. I'm not going to achieve my kingdom by escalating the judgment here. Because remember, how did the trumpets close? Human, humankind is not responding to his judgments. The rest of mankind did not repent. Like Pharaoh, they're hardening their hearts. Their hearts are not being softened by the judgment. So we're kind of left to wonder, where is this going? And like Daniel chapter 11 and 12, this prophecy as well concerns the end of all things, the fulfilling of God's kingdom. Look now with me at verses 6 and 7, the, the remaining part of 6 that we didn't read says this, that the angel swore that there would be no more delay, that time would run out, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, okay, we're talking about that seventh trumpet that we read, where the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. This is the, this is the fulfillment of all God's promises, the new creation, the kingdom here. When that happens, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And so here again, it's alluding, this is alluding to that Daniel 12 passage. 
In Daniel 12, we also get an image of this angelic figure who raises his hands and swears by the God of creation. But in Daniel 12, as we saw, it's sealed up. That promise of of God's ultimate fulfillment of, of the kingdom and the new creation, that's awaiting a future time in Daniel. But what do we see in the book of Revelation? In the book of Revelation, the angel is saying, no more delay. What Daniel was waiting for is now going to happen. In other words, church, we are living in the age of the fulfillment of God's kingdom. God's kingdom purposes are no longer to be delayed. That seventh trumpet is going to be blown. But again, we're still left with that question. God's kingdom purposes are about to be fulfilled. There's no longer going to be any delay, but it's not going to be by the thunder judgments. And so if not by the thunder judgments, how? But what we see is God has has issued the trumpet judgments and humanity didn't repent. Now God is going to pull out his secret weapon, the church's witness. His secret weapon, the church's mission to prophesy. Look at me with verses 8 through 11. And again, John is standing in the role of the church here, as we'll see when we get to chapter 11. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So again, as I've already mentioned, this is alluding quite obviously to Ezekiel chapter 2, 8 through 3, 3. Okay. And in this passage, Ezekiel is also told to eat a scroll that will be sweet, and yet the message he is going to deliver will be bitter. And again, this idea of eating the scroll, if he's, now he said he's going to prophesy, this all concludes with a, very, a much more sort of literal description of prophesying. So understanding the imagery of eating the scroll is this idea of absorbing the message, taking on the message, receiving the commission to then communicate that message. And again, standing in the role of the church here. And notice, the message is bittersweet. As the scroll is bittersweet, so the message, the idea is bittersweet. It's sweet probably in the sense that the church preaches the gospel. It is a sweet message to those who believe it. It's also the very thing, as the church proclaims the gospel in this age, it's the very thing that, as we saw, will bring about the final realization of God's purposes. God's kingdom will be brought about through the church's mission. But it's bitter, maybe first of all, in the sense that it, is, it means judgment for those who reject it. This is the meaning of bitter in the Ezekiel passage, where Ezekiel is told that written on this scroll are words of lamentation and mourning and woe, because those who do not respond to Ezekiel will face judgment. But as we look at chapter 11 and we see the church depicted as a temple being trampled and as two witnesses that will ultimately be killed as they prophesy, we see in the church's future a future of suffering. 
And so also, I think, the bitterness of this scroll is probably forecasting the church's bitter suffering. Which again, the Daniel 12 passage that we've seen alluded to already, told about when, 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 when we see the final fulfillment of God's purposes and the kingdom being brought about, accompanying that time period will be that the saints will undergo massive persecution and suffering. And so this only makes sense. In other words, the church proclaims sweet words met with bitter hostility. The church proclaims the sweet words of the gospel met with bitter hostility of the rejection of that message and even persecution and suffering on account of that message. All right, so where is this all leading us? I want us to notice a a detail in the passage that I think is really significant for us to understand the message of this passage. You'll notice that there was this mention of a little scroll that is open. He mentions this scroll four times, drawing our attention to it, four times in this passage. Now, when is the last time in the book of Revelation we have encountered a scroll? When is the last time in the book of Revelation we've encountered a scroll? You may remember chapter 5. What happens in chapter 5? John, after in chapter 4, seeing the throne of God and the worship of God as a creator, he, he hears a lion and then he sees a lamb. He sees Jesus represented as the warrior king who achieves victory by dying for his enemies, ironically. And in so doing, he becomes worthy to take the scroll. And the scroll, again, is representative of God's purposes for the course and destiny of history. Jesus, by his death, has won the new creation, has won the kingdom, has won a seat of judgment to those who oppose him. Okay, so now we also have a scroll in chapter 10. And what I'm going to argue is that this scroll is the same. So track with me here. In chapter 5, we have talk about opening the scroll. We need someone who's worthy to open the scroll which is what Christ does then in chapter 6, as we have the seals and the seal judgments broken open, that we would understand then that that scroll is opened up by the seals being broken. Here, twice in chapter 10, our attention is drawn to the fact that this scroll is opened. It's not just a scroll, but John goes out of his way to say that it is an open scroll. The scroll has now been opened by the seal judgments. It's ready to be read. We're ready to see its contents. We're ready to see how history will ultimately come to its conclusion. Both passages, chapter 5, where we have the scroll originally, and 10 here, both passages are built off of allusions to that Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 2 and 3, where we have a scroll written with words front and back that Ezekiel eats. In both cases, 5 and, 11, or 5 and 10, we have a mighty angel, and both of these mighty angels speak with a loud voice. The angel in chapter 5 is the one who says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Here it's the angel that stands on the sea and the land. In both cases, the scroll is held in one's hand, from which there is instruction for someone to go take it. So in chapter 5, it's held presumably by God, and the lamb goes and takes the scroll. Here it's held by the angel who, as I argued, represents Christ, who now has the scroll, right? And John is then told to go take the scroll out of his hand. When the angel calls with a loud voice, you'll notice in our passage, verse 3, that it says he he roared like a lion. And in chapter 5, we see Jesus as a lion, the angel here representing Christ again, I would argue. 
And in both cases, the scroll concerns the destiny of folks from peoples, nations, and languages. Those words are repeated. And so again, the scroll is God's purposes for history, which are going to climax in the seventh trumpet, when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And the meaning here then, as John takes that scroll and receives the commission standing for the church, means that the church's commission of prophetic suffering, as we'll see in chapter 11, is the content of this scroll. It is where history is headed. It is how God is going to fulfill his purposes. How is God going to fulfill his purposes for history and bring about his kingdom, i.e. the scroll? It is by the church prophetically witnessing to the gospel and suffering on account of the gospel. The church receives its commission, chapter 10. John eats the scroll. We're given a mission as the church. And then when we get to chapter 11, we see that we're witnessing. And because we're witnessing, we're suffering. As a temple, we're trampled. What is the result then of this mission we're given? Look at me with chapter 11, verse 13. And at that hour... There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And then notice this phrase, and the rest. Where have we seen that phrase, the rest, before? Go back to chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Here we have the rest this unbelieving humanity that is judged. They're not repenting. Go back to verse 11, or verse 13 in chapter 11. The rest here, after the suffering witness of the church, the rest were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. We have a flip happening. Something has happened in between the rest not repenting and now the rest giving glory to God. In this phrase, giving glory to God, I do believe it is referring to conversion here. Because everywhere else this phrase is used in the book of Revelation, it always is coupled with the idea of repentance. Chapter 16, verse 9, for example, in the bold judgment says that they did not repent and give glory to God. Giving glory to God, in other words, is parallel with repenting, which is exactly what the rest did not do at the end of chapter 9. And now the rest are giving glory to God. They are repenting. And how did this happen? Through the suffering witness of the church. This is then, right after this, we get the seventh trumpet. Right after the nations give glory to God, that is how the scroll comes to fulfillment. The seventh trumpet is blown, and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. The nations repent, in other words, not by means of God's judgment, like the trumpets or the thunders, but through the suffering witness of the church. The nations repent, in other words, not by God's escalation of judgment, which seems to only serve to harden most of humanity, but ultimately accompanying those judgments through the suffering witness of the church. And this is what we see even empirically across church history. You think of China and the underground church just exploding in the midst of oppression. We thought, people thought that the church would just dissipate under communism, but it exploded. In the early church, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, has a famous phrase where as Christians were suffering persecution in the early church, he said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
You kill us, in other words, it's only seed for the church to grow. And there's an an interesting parallel here then between chapter 5 and chapter 10 then, right? In chapter 5, we see that Christ is worthy to open the scroll. Why? Because he has conquered, rather ironically, by suffering. He conquers and he wins his enemy, not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. And as Christ is worthy by conquering ironically through suffering, so too here the church carries out the purposes of this scroll that Jesus is worthy to open by falling in the same footsteps as Jesus. The church conquers and wins the nations by suffering. So we can wrap it all up this way in one simple statement. The point of this passage and chapter 11, which we'll look at more next week, is this. That Christ has commissioned the church for a prophetic ministry of suffering. Christ has commissioned us, the church, for a prophetic ministry of suffering. And so what happens if we don't understand our role in this drama? I began by asking some of you if you've been in theater and talking about that illustration of of thinking of the Christian life and God's drama of redemption in terms of a theatrical production of God's drama of bringing about his course for history. And we are actors in that drama. We have a mission. We've been given a role to play. And we've seen in this text what that role is. But what happens if we don't understand our role? What happens if we forget our role? Uh, One of the plays I was in in high school was A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Have any of you heard of that? It's Shakespeare, okay? And I was Puck, okay? And those who know this, know, know the uh, play automatically laugh at that because Puck is a fairy who sprinkles dust on people and makes them love, uh, I think it's like the first person they see or something like that. So I was, it was like a, it's like a comical character, okay? So I was Puck, and I was making people fall in love. Another play I was in, though, and I don't remember the name of this play. I tried to find it, but I was, I think my character's name was Brutus, and I was like a Roman emperor, and I was the villain, okay? I think there was like a Roman slave who was like a gladiator or something. I was the villain emperor in the the story. Had this sword scene and all this stuff. Now, what if in the middle of being Brutus, I got confused about what role I was to play in in the story, and all of a sudden I acted like Puck, and I'm supposed to be in this sword theme, sword scene, and I'm like throwing dust at people instead, right? And that, everyone's like, what on earth is going on? It would be, it would just, it would, it would ruin the play. Well, what happens, church, if we are unaware or we forget what role we're supposed to play? We're actors in God's drama of redemption. What happens if we, we lose sight of our actual mission, of our actual identity, of our place in the drama. Let me give three three thoughts on this. Things for you to take with you and maybe discuss over lunch and think on more. I think the first danger is if we forget our role in the story is that we can just coast and we can idle. We forget that we're players in the drama at all. We forget that we have a mission, that we've been commissioned. We become inactive then in pursuing our mission. We're, we're, maybe we're off pursuing other missions that have replaced our mission. We think our life is ultimately all about our career or our, our pleasure or our hobbies or our safety or whatever. 
we forget that ultimately we have a commission that should charge us with a sense of urgency in all that we do. That it should, it should empower us to take action, not passivity, but take action to live with sacrifice, to make sacrifices for the sake of the mission. I, I have a friend um, from back home, I'll just say, and I remember at one point we would get together occasionally during seminary, he was wrestling with this idea that he felt like during this age of, 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 of redemptive history, of God's history of the world, things just kind of felt like there was nothing happening. Like you read in the Old Testament, all this stuff, and God's you know parting seas, and He's He's bringing the Israelites into the into the land, and there's all this crazy stuff happening. Jesus shows up, and now like right now it's just kind of boring. Like what do we do? And I remember being like, man, this is the best part of the story to live in. We carry out the mission that Christ has given us. He says we'll do greater things than He's done. We've been given the Spirit. Don't become passive. Don't coast thinking that we're just waiting. We just kind of hunker down and wait for Jesus to come again. No, we've been given a mission in the meantime. We have things to do. Let's go. Second of all, if we lose track of what our role is in the story, I think we can get sidetracked. Maybe we're aware that we're supposed to have a mission, and so we have a sense of, like, we should be doing things. Maybe it's not the first thing that's our our problem, but we're sidetracked in what our mission is. We get distracted with what our actual role is. And so we just start doing church. We just start going through the motions. Maybe as a church, we get consumed with things that are not the most important. Maybe things that are good. They might be good in and of themselves, but we kind of forget what the actual mission is, and so we become obsessed with all these other things over here, like having the best music ministry, or having people sign up for small groups, or or making sure our budget is met. Again, all those things, good. But what should we be obsessed with? What should we never lose sight of? All those things should actually be, should serve and be subservient to is the ultimate mission to make maturing followers of Jesus by the power of the gospel. Everything we do as a church should be honed in and we should be able to understand this is happening for that. And if it's not doing that, it's not worth doing. We have a honing in of our mission. We understand that our commission is to prophesy to the nations, to be a missionary people. If we're not prophesying to the nations, what are we doing? Let's pack up and go home because I'm not interested in it. This should be our center as our church, our obsession. Everything should be aimed here. We're honed into our mission. And one of the beauties of that is that that should achieve unity as well. Someone once said that if you aim at unity, you won't achieve it. But if you aim at mission, you'll get unity as a byproduct with it. That if we're focused, if we're all focused on mission, it kind of causes everything to fall away that might divide us because we're focused, we're together, we're locking arms. Thirdly, I would say, the first one is that we might coast or be idle. Second is that we might get sidetracked. Thirdly, is I think if we lose sight of what our actual role is in the drama, we can be taken off guard by the suffering that this passage predicts for us. Maybe we take a different posture to our engagement of the nations, our engagement of culture, that we think that we're supposed to be cast for a different role in the drama. We start to suffer and we're like, what's happening? This isn't normal. I shouldn't be suffering. So I'll give you three Ds that we might do. We might, on the one hand, we might become desperate. 
When we start to see suffering coming in, or we start to see marginalization, we start to see maybe society going in a direction that uh, where Christianity is just not going to be very favorable. We start to feel desperate and hopeless. Christianity is going down the tubes. Whereas Revelation is saying, no, that's the normal Christian life. You've had it cushy maybe up until this point. This is normal. And this is not going to be a detriment for the mission going forward. This is how the mission goes forward. It's through suffering. Or maybe we, we think as we start to suffer, as we start to be marginalized, that our posture is ultimately to dominate, that, the, that another D is dominate, that as we sort of engage culture, our posture to culture is to try to dominate. Now, I'm not saying that we, if we can have a good influence on society, by all means, let's do it. Let's seek the welfare of our society. But if we think our ultimate mission is not a humble posture where maybe we actually suffer at the hands of our society, but our, our ultimate mission is to be like culture warriors who dominate, we've misconstrued our mission. Our ultimate mission is to be prophets who suffer. That's normal. Or thirdly, we become desperate. That if we think the mission actually hinges on us not suffering, because sometimes you hear that, you hear folks kind of wrestling with, well, if, we are, if we're persecuted or if we suffer, if we're marginalized, like, then we can't, we can't have the gospel go forth, like our church is going to fall apart. No, we don't need to be desperate. The mission will go forward even through suffering. In fact, it might actually be fueled by the suffering. Suffering is normal. It's actually a part of our commission. Because you'll notice here, it's not just that we're commissioned, sorry, we're, it's not just that we're commissioned to prophesy and the byproduct is that we happen to suffer. But notice, suffering is actually a part of our commission. It actually serves our witness. It's as the nation saw the two witnesses suffering and God vindicating them, it was then by watching the church suffer and seeing its faithfulness despite suffering that the nations found the gospel compelling. And this ministry that we've been given is all first and foremost because of Christ, that he himself came on a mission for us. The mission did not originate with us. We don't invent this. This isn't our idea. But the mission that we have is just a continuation of the mission that God himself is on. He has sent his son, as John elsewhere says in this Gospel of John, a really well-known verse, John 3.16, that in love of the world, he sent his son. The mission is first of all, the mission that we have is first of all because Jesus is on a mission for us, to win us. It's his grace. All of this is because God is gracious to us. And our mission is only made possible by Christ achieving his mission. As we saw in Revelation 5, the only reason we can be given this scroll is because Christ is worthy to have opened it himself. In chapter 5, it says, Worthy are you, O Lamb, O Christ, to do what? To take this scroll, to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. The only reason we can go and preach the gospel to these nations and languages and see them gathered in is because Jesus has already bought those people. We're just collecting them up. The mission is simply the carrying out of Jesus' redemption that he's already won on the cross. And this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper every week. We are a gospel people. The, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that everything we do is centered on the gospel. We only exist because of the gospel. Our mission only happens because of the gospel and through the gospel.